This evening, I'd like to give uh, my last talk for the past engagement. I will open my mouth after this evening, <laughs> but this will be this will be the longest period of time I open my mouth. Uh, I want to talk about the path of engagement, its nature, and its importance for our times. And I want to do so uh, in large part through telling some of my own stories. So I want to begin with a story from 1992. It was actually the first time I went to Thailand. And I spent quite a, quite a while there. I spent several weeks at meetings of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which were quite inspiring. Worked with Sulak Savaraksha, met people from all over Asia, also from Europe, Australia, North America. Met a number of people who were at that time living on the uh, Burmese-Thai border. So just a few years after the crackdown in Burma. I was very inspired and after the several weeks of meetings with the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, I went to uh, a monastery in uh, northern Thailand near the Lao border uh, called um, Wat Pabantat. And the main teacher is a, a well-known teacher, still alive in his 80s, named Achan Mahabua. Some of you probably know of his uh, teaching. I stayed there for several weeks and did my own personal retreat. They gave me a cottage, a kuti. And there actually were very few people there who spoke English. But one of the people who was there who spoke English was an English monk named Achan Panawato, who at that time was the monk, the Western monk with the most seniority. He had been a monk since, I believe, around 1965 in Thailand. He actually died just a few years ago. And I would uh, just have a brief conversation with him every afternoon. I would talk with him and he, I was very excited about engaged Buddhism and so forth, and he was not. <laughs> <laughs> and he made a number of comments that have stayed with me. He said, uh, he said, uh, social work can be helpful. But he said, our work is the uprooting of the kalesas of the defilements, you sometimes translated, of, of greed, hatred, and delusion. And he says, we need the uh, support and focus of a monastery in order really to do that. Out there in the world, you don't have the support or focus necessary to really walk the path. too distracting, not enough support. This was a little deflating 
for me, but it also was in very much, uh, I really took it as a kind of a challenge. I thought that it raised a number of pretty powerful questions about what a path of engagement might mean and whether we're just fooling ourselves. How do we have the depth of a traditional path in our engaged practice? How do we have the focus to really get at the core structures of greed, hatred, and delusion? How do we have the support not to just be like everyone else, basically, kind of running around and busy and so forth, and maybe doing some good things. And how, furthermore, if we haven't developed in significant ways spiritually, how will our work in the world actually be helpful as opposed to muddled and helpful to some extent and maybe not so helpful to, to some extent? So to me, these are actually uh, deep and powerful questions. They're provocative questions for anyone who's just spent two years in path of engagement, but they might also resonate with our challenges, with our, um, some of our issues. Now, those are a set of questions, but I also had a separate set, set of questions which I don't think I directly asked of Achan Panawato, but I think there are uh, other questions that we might ask that I think in a sense complement those, but maybe go in an opposite direction, which really has to do with are there uh, insights and almost like intuitions that we are driven by or called by if we are interested in an engaged path that actually offers something new and in a sense uh, meet both the needs of our times and in ways that traditional paths cannot do. Because most of us feel called being here to have a different kind of path, to live in the world, to engage in society, to, for most of us, to have uh, intimate relationships, to be in the work world, to engage in the political world at times, and so forth. And so, are there also um, ways that the engaged path can actually address limitations, especially in our times, of the traditional path. So I think both sets of questions are actually quite powerful and quite important. That is, how can an engaged path contribute? Why, what's the value of it? Why is it helpful? Why not just do a traditional path and try to maybe do some good work? And also, how can an engaged path have that quality of depth and focus and support to really make it work? rather than just to have us be mm, not really touching the depth. So I want to explore those questions tonight 
And I want to do so really in three main themes, or covering three main themes. The first is to talk about uh, traditional paths, traditional Buddhist paths, what they aim for, and also to some extent whether there are limitations or ways that they don't meet some of our core needs. And then secondly, talk about why an engaged path? What does it mean? Why is it helpful? Why is it important? And then thirdly, talk about some of the core elements of the engaged path, which will be in part a way to uh, connect some of what we've done over these two years. Because I think partly uh, developing this talk was also a way for me to integrate. That's what we're doing, wanting to do in large part on this retreat. So it was a way for me to look at what we've done maybe with fresh eyes in, this, in, a, in a different perspective. So first, traditional Buddhist paths. We come from different Buddhist traditions, so there are different really ways of understanding that path. And some of the different approaches we had some readings on in the study and practice material. But so I want to be a little simple here and talk particularly about the Eightfold Path, the understanding of the path developed by the Buddha. And in that understanding, there are these three main dimensions of the path. First is what we might call the ethical training. The second is the training in meditation. And the third is the training in wisdom. So we have also tried very much to ground ourselves in that traditional path as part of the path engagement. Because I truly believe that to most fully walk the engaged path, we have to ground in the traditional path, or let's say the best of the traditional path. Some issues there I won't go into immediately. And we have to also see what is emerging that we need to co-create in a way that develops uh, what we might call a more engaged path. But a lot of the engaged path is going to make use of these very traditional tools. So we can find that the ethical precepts, which are essentially about not harming, which we took with Sarah, uh, was it yesterday? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think yesterday. And that they are ways to uh, create safety, both for ourselves and for others. We become safe for others. They give this powerful training, and sometimes they're taken as an initial training that even if we still have internal greed, hatred, and delusion, if we check our behavior by the influence of the precepts, it's a great start. It can really make a huge difference. That, and so the precepts are part of the training, and sometimes in monasteries, the precepts will be the main training, particularly when people enter a monastery when they're younger. You know, that the behavioral dimension, the uh, dimension of uh, one's ethical behavior can become a primary mode of training. And in, in a sense, that quality of non-harming and development of character and development of one's uh, ethical practice really, in a sense, makes, makes the deeper meditation practice possible, or makes, I should say, the meditation practice possible. I do believe that ethical practice can be incredibly deep and can be a focus for some people. 
to really, you know, maybe someone who really follows a path of nonviolence and tries to work in that way. That can be very, very, I think, quite, quite deep because ultimately it's about who do I think I am? How do I separate myself from others? And so actually in this notion of this threefold training, they are actually all interrelated. They're not, as it were, sequential so much. And we also have the traditional training of uh, meditation, of developing mindfulness that in a way also starts to uproot the greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha says mindfulness dams any flood of greed, hatred, and delusion. It lets us see what's there and over time we can uh, see more clearly and uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. We develop uh, concentration through shamatha practices, and of course those are in every Buddhist tradition, through, uh, through the ability to focus. We can do that in loving-kindness practice or in being with the breath. And through that there develops this uh, uh, deepening ability to penetrate very, very deeply into consciousness. We also, in a sense, purify aspects of our, of our mind and body and heart. We can develop uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, the Brahma Vihara, and in other traditions, other practices. So we have these wonderful tools that help us to transform our very being, to see our patterns. You know, and for me, the mindfulness practices were revolutionary, I'm sure, as they were for many of you, whatever version you got them in, to be able to uh, learn to still the mind, to not be dominated by thinking in this culture is a breakthrough, incredible breakthrough. And for myself, it was amazing to be, have my senses come alive, to have things sparkle for weeks on end, you know, rather than just from drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, uh, quite wonderful. And, and to uh, uh, a minor confession there. <laughs> and so uh, amazing to, and to be able to see over time using mindfulness, to be able to see basic patterns, to come to see, oh, I uh, actually have a strong conditioning to try to control experience. I can notice that in mindfulness. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, to actually feel that tendency to project a desire for control onto phenomena moment to moment. We can, the mind gets quiet, we can see that, we can feel that. To study more closely the nature of the mind and the body and the, and the self and so forth, to see self-images, to work through them and so forth, the glorious aspect of this path. And, and the wisdom teachings, thirdly, the teachings of the four truths about the roots of suffering and a kind of compulsive uh, craving or pushing away. You know, this, this very powerful teaching, the teaching that, that is in some sense because we, of a basic ignorance. We don't know our, our deeper nature. And so we construct, as it were, uh, and we would say now, uh, very much helped by the conditioning of the society, we construct the self and we try to find pleasure and avoid pain for the self. And the confusion proliferates, you know, because of that basic ignorance, 
and our inability to be with what's difficult and to avoid grasping pleasure. And we have these incredible teachings of not self, of impermanence, of the from different traditions of our of our basic nature, and then of how wisdom is joined with compassion. How even when we teach emptiness and teach not self, it's conjoined with compassion for those, including ourselves, who are caught in ignorance. And then lastly, in addition, as it were, to these three aspects of training, the path includes the possibility of awakening to Nibbana or to in Tibetan tradition might be called the nature of mind, that fuller opening which goes even beyond the other trainings and cleanses something and removes certain dimension of ignorance. So these are incredible resources, aren't they? Amazing. Amazing to be alive and have those accessible. They were not available very much in this culture 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, um, 40 years ago. <laughs> Incredible to explore these insights that come from mindfulness, to, to experience rapture, the joy of a peaceful mind, of, con of a concentrated mind, and to have access to Moments of awakening, mo moments of awakened states. Why do we want any more, we might ask? Why isn't that enough? Why shouldn't we simply walk as best we can our traditional path and then, and then um, if we feel called to help others, we can do so as best we can. Why not simply follow a traditional path and leave it at that? I think it's actually quite good to ask that question of oneself. Another way of asking that question is, are there ways in which a traditional path, as it's been brought forth, doesn't in some sense meet the needs of our practice in these times? or is in some sense incomplete. Rather provocative to talk like that, right? Could be. In some, some settings that would be seen as provocative. Depends what one means by incomplete. So I think that there are two main ways that we can point to a kind of incompletion. Maybe we would use other language. Maybe we would say there are two ways in which traditional teachings get extended. Maybe that's a little, that's a different way of talking about it. I think the meaning is, is rather similar. So maybe incomplete is overly um, provocative. Maybe not. Uh, I think there are two main 
areas where the need for an engaged path has emerged. And, and I want to speak simply here. This could be brought out in a lot more detail. One of them is more coming out of the experience in Asia, and the other one's coming more out of the experience in um, the West. And I'll particularly focus on North America. So in the context of Asia, engaged Buddhism particularly emerged where there were major conflicts, many of them anti-colonial. Sri Lanka, what's now Sri Lanka, Vietnam, a lot of the real uh, influence of engaged Buddhism came particularly from Vietnam, and we know Thich Nhat Hanh is one of the great teachers of that, uh, of that movement in, in Vietnam. I remember uh, looking with my uh, friend Thich Minh Duc, a Vietnamese uh, monk, uh, and he actually did his uh, work, did his dissertation with me on a history of engaged Buddhism in Vietnam, which hopefully will be a book uh, soon. And we found, I, I remember looking with him and seeing these texts from the 1930s, which were actually in French, and they, they, you know, they, were, they were basically saying, uh, they, were, they actually were songs in French for Vietnamese Buddhists and that were saying, engagez-vous, <laughs> you know, engage yourself, and using the language of, of, of engage. And we found it from the late 1930s, very interesting. And so um, we know that Thich Nhat Hanh felt compelled in a way to think of extending the traditional practice. He developed guidelines for the, for the groups of people with whom he worked who were increasingly helping with uh, refugees, with education, with medical needs, as well as coming out into the, the larger uh, movement for peace. And he talked, and I think this, this uh, area or this contribution from the Asian movements, I would call particularly the uh, bringing the teachings and practices into parts of life where they haven't commonly been. That's a way that, in, that's a way that we see part of the meaning of engaged practice. It's bringing the teachings and practices into areas of life where they haven't really been developed. Thich Nhat Hanh said it this way. And he, he didn't talk about denying traditional practice. He said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed, along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people, but to do so in mindfulness. We wanted to keep the traditional training, but bringing it into these spheres where uh, basically, monks and nuns hadn't usually gone. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And I think that's complemented by the experience that in North America and I, th I think in the Western world, but I'll focus on North America, that there's also a way that engaged Buddhism came out, I think, out of this deep encounter, really, between Buddhist tradition and I would say 
two main cultural forces. One of them are the Western traditions of social justice, and the other is the Western tradition of depth psychology. And there's been a kind of meeting that is producing something new. You know, and that, in a sense, is not just bringing Buddhist teachings into new areas, but it's also there's a kind of a dialogue, an encounter that I think is producing something new. We see that when we look, for example, at the way that engaged practice has dealt with gender or diversity issues or democracy and whatever. There's a way that we're really bringing the traditions of uh, social justice, which many of us just, it's part of what's here. And I think there's something new that that, that's, that that represents, that meeting, which is more than simply bringing Buddhist practice into new areas. There's something, there's a way, I believe, in the long term, that there's a meeting and a deeper integration of Buddhist practice with these cultural forces of uh, social justice and democracy, equality, and so forth, mm -hmm. and also depth psychology. This is totally like what's happened with Buddhism every other time it's moved anywhere. That there's been a meeting, Larry Yang talked about this, remember, about the, the way that Buddhism has gone to other cultures. It doesn't just plop itself down. If it's alive, it's going to engage with the people and the forces that are there. And so in China, there's this deep meeting of Buddhism with the Taoist tradition, with very, a very different flavor than we have in India, a very different flavor of Buddhism, uh, much more pragmatic, much more engaged in the world. Uh, we have in Tibet a meeting of Buddhism, we could say, with a lot of indigenous forces, indigenous traditions. And so what, what's happening in our culture is partly that meeting. But it really points in a way, to me, to something that's happening on a very deep level that we represent. And I'll, in a moment, I'll say why I think it's really, really crucial and almost archetypal what's happening and what we represent, maybe uh, early birth, early growth, early bud in this meeting of uh, this deep inner tradition with, the, with this movement to bring spirituality into all parts of our lives and to connect it with the traditions of liberation that come especially from Western culture, contemporary Western culture. So what is an engaged path then? What, is it, what does it look like? For myself, it's often been really difficult to make some of those bridges. I can talk about that now and it can seem, in a sense, um, like that is a horizon, what defines us in part. But in practice, it's quite hard. And, we, and I think there have been, for me personally, there's been a lot of struggles and a certain amount of loneliness. You know, because coming out of more of a social justice tradition, uh, for a long time, uh, most of my friends with whom I had grown up and gone to college with and were involved in social justice, they didn't want to hear much about spirituality. And one of, the, one of the encounters I most remember is when a really good friend from college met me 
on a street, I think in Boston when I was studying there, and I started talking about meditation, and he, it felt like he almost ran away from me. And we didn't uh, talk after that. We haven't talked since. You know? So a certain loneliness, friends who don't stay friends. You know? And I think many of us have experienced that. You know? And on the other side also, you know, challenges to try to, really to try to bring all parts of ourselves to an encounter. You know, I've also had times where, and I'm sure as many of you have, where I've tried to bring the more engaged aspect into a Buddhist setting and found a lot of frustration. You know, whether it's an experience, I remember this very profound experience of talking with a Korean Zen teacher. Uh, this was quite a while ago, 1980. It was right after there had been uh, massacres in Gwangju in Korea. Some of you may, may know that history. Thousands of people killed. And he was there right after that. I asked him, how does, you know, naively, <laughs> so young practitioner asked him, how, do, how, does, how does your Zen practice help your dealing with the situation? And his answer was, we don't deal with that. We do religion. That's politics. They're separate. Mm. That hurt. That hurt. And it felt, it felt very lonely for quite a while. Or hearing stories, as many of you hear, about you know, sometimes spiritual communities, Buddhist communities, or uh, retreat centers can sometimes have a lot of dysfunction, a certain amount of chaos. Sometimes they're not very skilled at dealing with conflict. You know, and I know I can have many references to that. And so it's often been lonely to make that connection. And it's, I think, for myself personally, it was through uh, becoming more involved with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and the base program that Diana Winston founded and really having that sense increasingly that I could be in settings where every part of me was welcome, where I did not have to hide certain parts because certain it was not socially acceptable. It was not socially acceptable to, uh, when one's talking about a particular form of suffering, to move from the Dharma teachings to more psychological analysis, to uh, personal stories, to social analysis, you know. And I, I think I, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I remember very distinctly one moment where it all came together. It was one of our meetings of the base group. And one person, one evening, was talking about her distress at working with, the homeless, with homeless people. We had, a, you know, we had a group of 10 or 12 people. And that evening, we went everywhere. She talked about her own psychological issues of dealing with suffering. We talked about the Four Noble Truths. We talked about deinstitutionalization, about social trends of the last 20 years. Everything was welcome. We talked about strategies, politics. It was all available to be there. And that felt so liberating for me, like I could be there. And so it's, uh, it's almost as if personally that I've, I think this may be true for many of us, that we have to make our own path that we want to walk so that we can walk it. <laughs> It's like, I think, a phrase that comes out of Brazil. Maybe you know this, the phrase from your experience with, Brazil, with Brazilian um, uh, theater of the oppressed, right? That, that we, we make the road by walking it. 
It's not like it's preordained. We make the road by walking it, and there are a lot of uh, missteps, right? I think we've made POE by walking it. We didn't lay out the path here at the beginning. I think, I think you know that by now. <laughs> In fact, we've, we've contributed to really discovering what that path is. And finding, you know, finding ways to, finding ways to, uh, to walk it. I believe that this path of engaged practice that may seem like a minority path right now to many of us. It's not, you know, hugely represented on the Spirit Rock retreat schedule. I believe that this is key to the survival of the species, if I could be blunt like that. Um, maybe a little grandiose, but not too much. <laughs> uh, I, believe, I believe that uh, the kind of challenges that we have now really require spiritual resources to respond to them. Sarah's gonna talk about global climate change and engaged practice uh, on Monday. When we name some of the great issues of our times, particularly the more global ones, they're immense. It's very challenging, whether it's economic collapse or the growing, the continually increasing disparity between rich and poor. Robert Bella, who's a great sociologist at Berkeley, he said this is the primary ethical issue of our time. You know, that disparity and, and Bhikkhu Bodhi, who wrote this very powerful piece about two years ago, this conservative monk scholar came out saying we have to be engaged. This is the primary directive of Buddhists now, he said. Or we look to global climate change, we really, I believe that these challenges require the resources that we cultivate of ability to be with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, to develop the qualities of calm and equanimity and courage and patience and so forth, and to be able to advance uh, principles like interdependence, to cut through self-centeredness. I think we need these kind of resources to respond to these issues. And I think we need it in a way that can affect large numbers of people. We need large numbers of people to be able to, in a sense, work with an engaged path, to have some of these tools of grounding in ethics and working with conflict, working with strong emotions and so forth. I think that's very crucial for our times right now. Gandhi. I could not be leading a religious life unless I identified myself with the whole of humanity. And that I cannot do unless I took part in politics. The whole gamut of human activities today constitutes an indivisible whole. You cannot divide social, economic, political, and purely religious work into watertight compartments. For Shantideva from the eighth century, pointing to how suffering in the world comes out of core ignorance. This entire world, he says in the eighth century, is disturbed by insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Eighth century. <laughs> so we have this, I think, this uh, calling 
to develop an engaged path. And we have these incredible resources, not just from Buddhist tradition, not just the resources of the bodhisattva and these incredible resources of mindfulness and concentration and ethics and wisdom. We have it also from the Western traditions, the prophetic traditions of Judaism and Christianity and Islam, these incredible uh, resources. It's one reason I brought in for the altar these, uh, the figure of Jesus. You know, I think it's very much, uh, very much a common destiny. And so even though we may be, we may call ourselves Buddhists, I believe that this engaged path is what's called for by all traditions. And increasingly, we have the same issues and we can go across traditions to share resources. So I want to finish by just naming what I take to be some of the elements of this path. And this, in a way, can connect some of what we've, uh, some of what we've explored. And I think I want to name five core elements for this engaged path. I think there are others, but this is a kind of grouping that can help us to uh, see that we've actually been engaged, so to speak, or we've been involved with actually a systematic curriculum that we can keep on moving with, keep on developing, keep on finding ways to have this uh, be part of our lives for the rest of our lives, hopefully, and beyond, depending on your belief system. So the first is ethical grounding. This means a personal grounding in the ethical guidelines, as the practices that we follow uh, at the beginning of the retreat, the way that we increasingly make this part of our very nature, that we follow the ethical guidelines. An engaged ethics, though, takes ethics beyond face-to-face encounters. That, and this is where it becomes challenging, that we have to ask these questions of what does it mean to make ethical commitments when my country tortures? Very challenging. What does it mean? That's why I say one could take ethical practice. It could be your main practice. You know, or when my country is at war, or my country has capital punishment. And there, um, I'm sure the counterpart in Canada. That you know whether it's, uh, uh, but we have to ask those questions. You know, what does that mean, or what does it mean? Uh, what, uh, what is my um, ethical responsibility not to harm when there are forms of harming that I may even participate in through taxes or through my, my um, involvement in an institution which may do some harm. So taking, taking ethics is both a way to ground, but it's also a challenge. It's not easy. It seems like that's a fundamental aspect of engaged practice. One of the dimensions of ethics, I think, really points to a second whole area, which is crucial, and that's the area of speech and communication. I think that if we're involved in engaged practice, we have to become deeply, deeply skillful in our speech and communication. To work with the wise speech in terms of the ethical guidelines, but also to be able to develop those more subtle and dif more difficult practices of being involved in speech and keeping inner awareness. More difficult, more challenging. 
to expand our work with speech so it becomes a very strong part of our practice. And that speech can not, again, not just mean face-to-face speech, but our, perhaps, our working with speech in the society, our response to lies or our response to falsehoods, our ways of working with um, speech in ways that go beyond our face-to-face encounters. It might be very simply to bring, um, to bring wise speech more fully into different settings, to bring it into uh, our families, our workplaces. One of my um, satisfactions over the last few years has been that I've been able, uh, with the uh, Saber Graduate School where I've been part, to um, have been part of a communication committee where we adopted certain guidelines following years of unskillful speech. The unskillful speech has not utterly gone away, but we adopted these guidelines, and I just presented the guidelines of being truthful, helpful, coming out of a warm heart, and being having good timing, basic guidelines of wise speech. And I presented this to the faculty, and the committee really liked it. So we um, now, for every faculty meeting, the other guidelines have fallen away, but they want me to name, they, for even, they have no idea they're even Buddhist. And I put them up on a piece of poster paper at the end of the hall, and they're sitting there for every meeting. You know? And I chuckle. <laughs> and, it's, uh, and there are people there who, ha- who historically have had very unwise speech, and they often start their statement by saying, I'm not sure if this is following the guidelines, and that is... <laughs> 90% of the way. <laughs> and so I think there are just they're all these ways that we can bring speech into practice. I think focus on speech is it's, it's so significant for our engaged practice. I wanted to name it as a second area. A third area, and you can see in a way these are following the traditional three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. I think it's key to learn how to bring inner practice into our action, to connect our inner work with our action in the world in all sorts of ways. How do we bring our inner practice into our meetings, our emails, our encounters, our policy work? How can we keep present? How can we keep mindful? How can we work with loving kindness or Tong Lan? How can that be a very live part of our action? I think that is an incredible horizon for us and not easy at all, right? Not easy at all. You know, a lot of times we may even, we may be lucky just to do a half hour practice on the cushion and then we go to work and forget it. Too much to do, too busy, right? So this is an incredible horizon. How do we actually uh, bring that inner practice into our, into our, lo- into our, our work, our lives? How can we be skillful when there are difficult emotions, difficult thoughts? How can we bring the tools that we've explored in the midst of action? How can we see our own patterns and take our action as a place of learning? Personally, I think that grounding in the body plays a huge role here. So I think what we're, what we're doing with Qigong and what we do with Tija is incredibly important. Because my experience is in a highly mental culture, 
what helps me tremendously to be present in action is to actually have a strong basis in my body. But for some of us, this may mean that to actually be able to walk this path, we have to do actually a lot of inner practice in a more traditional way. And that's an interesting question. How much traditional retreat, traditional practice is important? I think we have to work that out. Personally, I've needed a lot, actually quite a lot. And I think always of a, a friend named Prapaisan, who's a Thai uh, abbot of a monastery and also an activist. His model, which I loved when I first met him, he is abbot of a monastery for six months a year and does deep practice in the mountains. And then he's an activist for six months. And he goes out into the world. And he has that six-month cycle of continuing to deepen. Most of us think of that that is that economically possible? <laughs> you know? I think there, there are issues there, but that model inspires me. That model of having because I think it's I think we may need to have that kind of deep practice. I was thinking of the original model that Sarah and I thought about for path engagement. It wasn't called path engagement, it was called the Bodhisattva School. And my father used to say, Sarah always reminds me of this, my father always used to say, How's the BS? <laughs> BS is doing just fine. <laughs> but I think our original model that we, uh, that we thought of was to do a month of silent practice followed by two months intensive interactive work together followed by three months out in the world and to repeat that cycle four times. <laughs> it's an interesting, and so I think it, because it really gets at that question of what kind of depth is necessary. So this is really a path. I think that's a real, real deep question. Fourth area are the wisdom teachings and to take the traditional wisdom teachings and I think expand them. I think David Loy's work that we explored plays an incredible role in developing a kind of Buddhist-based social analysis so that we can actually see greed, hatred, and delusion at the institutional and cultural level. To have those, what I would call Dharma eyes, to look at the society. Incredible tool, necessary tool, to have wisdom dimensions for the engaged practice. to see the parallels between inner and outer transformation. That's one of the, for me, great uh, discoveries, partly from doing engaged practice, partly from writing the book, is that I found that the dynamics of inner transformation are the same as outer transformation. That they follow the same basic laws so that when we really know this transformative process well, we can transfer it and it can help inspire us to be creative. That it has something to do with going deeply into what's there, including what's painful, and meeting it with compassion and presence and awareness, and healing occurs. And it also means being able to develop what we might call enlightened states and hang out in them more and more and more. And if I had to simplify the transformative process, it would be doing those two things, going into the pain of the past, into the patterns of the past, learning how to do that skillfully, 
and also not have that be the only thing, but going also into the beautiful states, into the enlightened states, whether it's of a person or of a relationship or of a community. And the last area I wanted to name as foundational really is about the application of all of these tools to larger areas. And I was thinking in particular of two main applications that are, I think, part of an engaged curriculum. One of them is the work that we've done at our third retreat on conflict. I think one of my great learnings in past engagement was the importance of working and being very skilled at dealing with conflict. You know, I think we, in a way, went into some very charged territory with diversity without having that many skills. That'd be my own assessment. Uh, there are other issues also, but that, that, that's one of them. And so I, I find myself really valuing the tools that we worked with to develop in conflict that we'll revisit with Lawrence when he comes on Wednesday. That the, that the, that the collection of uh, capacities, competencies, to be able to uh, work with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, to be able to uh, stay with direct experience rather than going up, remember, the ladder of inference to all sorts of assumptions and so forth, to stay low on the ladder of inference, to be able to develop a kind of non-dual vision of a conflict so we don't get so identified with our own position. These are incredible tools for working with any social issue, any conflict of whatsoever. This to me seems foundational. And the other piece is the ability to engage in nonviolent action. This is, again, kind of bringing the tools together to work on a, maybe on a larger scale. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, the essence of nonviolence is love. Cornell West said something that I heard a few, about a week ago. He said, he said that um, justice is the public face of love. And I think it's that way of um, finding ways to work for justice through developing skillful nonviolent action that's, again, I think part of the, part of what we learn, part of what we learn here. I believe that we really can't work with the issues, the problems of the world very adequately without, without these kind of resources. That without them, we will, I think, tend uh, to duplicate the problems to a significant extent. There'll be the, we won't have cut through ignorance. We won't have the resources to be balanced in really difficult moments. These resources of calm and equanimity and wisdom and compassion are, are, are deeply needed. And similarly, I think there's a deep need, given this tremendous spiritual awakening that's occurred, I think, in the West and increasingly in the world, that has to, in a way, go outward. We have, you know, I think all of us have been called in that direction, but still, Relatively few people have, and I think if, uh, if spirituality, let's say in North America, doesn't go towards an engaged practice, it can become middle class escapism very easily. 
It can be the self-centered pursuit of the transformation of self. which is pretty much what the Mahayana tradition said to the arhats. <laughs> I won't go into that. That's a whole story there. So I was thinking of closing just with a few expressions, I think, of this uh, calling, really, for engaged practice. This is from the second century from Rabbi Tarfan. It is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. It is not upon you to finish the work, neither are you free to desist from it. This is from Odo Sesho Roshi. This is one of my favorite quotes. It was Gary Snyder's uh, Zen teacher. I, I got this from Gary Snyder, the, the poet and environmental activist. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It's all metaphorical. <laughs> you sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. <laughs> you, you sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. And then the last is, is from Dina Metzger, a poet. This is a very short little poem that I'll end with called Song. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. So let's just sit together for a minute or two. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. In each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potential in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels, even the lowest, harshest, and most degrading levels, not in mere contemplation, but an effective action illuminated by its own goal.
So thank you for your attention. And I hope that the talk can be, tonight's talk can be um, material that we explore um, in our time when we have open discussion um, tomorrow and, and beyond. So, <laughs> so I look forward. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.